You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, g'day. How's everybody doing? Pretty good? Tell you what, last week, with the troopers arrived in the storm, just gale force wind, crazy I want to just shout out to Tom and Joe and little Daniel. I saw them come in about this time in the service. Just absolute, hey, buddy, uh, absolute, just hailing out there almost. And they came in with a two-week-old baby in that storm. So bless they're here today. Give them some love, guys. Well done. <laughs> that, that's commitment. We get some escapees here from Kids Church. That's great. <laughs> Very appropriate for today, as you'll see. Um, Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been really disoriented? Have you ever been really disoriented? Just lost, just felt like you just didn't know where you were. Maybe it was in a foreign country, in a big city. Maybe when the signs weren't in your home language, they were all in a different language. You just get really turned around, you don't know where they are. Man, have you ever been lost? I find myself in enormous complexes, big office blocks, or maybe, I tell you what, I'm being pretty honest here, Car parks, enormous car parks. I just cannot for the life of me ever find the way out sign. It's so, my wife has got an enormous amount of patience with me. I'm just driving around on the same level. I don't know how to get out of these enormous car parks. I really feel very disoriented. Two days ago on our day off, really the first time we've ever done this, we went and saw a movie during the day, which just feels great, especially when you've got a few kids, right? It felt awesome. And we're there in these recliners. There weren't many of us in the cinema, but typical me, halfway through, I really had to go to the bathroom. Now, and I hate missing anything of the movie, but I'm, you know, you're always thinking, oh, can I be fast? Where is the toilet? Is it close? And all that kind of, and you know, the, the pain of having to go to the bathroom, does it outweigh having to miss a part of the movie? This is going on in my mind, and I thought, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. Okay, Pip, just tell me what I miss, okay? Just photographic memory of what I miss, and when I get back, fill me in. So I bolt to the, it's in the dark, but I make it, I bolt to the toilet, I come back really quickly, and I sit down to whom I think is my wife. <laughs> and I kind of snuggle up, and um, I said, so what did I miss? And I look at her, and this woman just looks at me, just, who are you? And I just, I could not stop laughing, I was so embarrassed. But in, in the dark, I mean, it's so dark in a movie, right? And she was sitting at the exact same, like, one or two rows down. And it just felt, when I sat down, I thought, this seat is no longer reclined, but that's a bit weird, but that's okay. <laughs> and anyway, that's my excuse. And I didn't want to get to know that. Like, anyway, so I just laughed my whole way back to my seat. And Pip said, I just saw you walking towards this water. What are you doing? My excuse, I was disoriented. It was dark. I didn't know where I was. I got the wrong row, got the wrong seat. I tell you what, being disoriented can be disorienting. It can feel strange. It can feel very confusing. It's even worse when you get up and down mixed up. A friend of mine went out in big surf. He told me this story. Uh, Just to swim enormous, uh, sorry, to surf huge storm swell waves like are going on at the moment. And he got dumped. Now, most Aussies know what it feels like to get really dumped in big surf. You just get smashed over and over again. It feels like you're in a washing machine. He had to hold his breath for a long time. We know what that's like. And when it kind of, he, he could, the, the wave lost its intensity. He swam to what he thought was the surface and then he hit the bottom. 
His, his, his face just pressed into the sand. He was that turned around that he swam to what he thought was the surface, but it was actually the bottom. He was that confused. He thought down was up. Now, I think today is going to feel a little bit like that for us. Hopefully not as scary as being tossed around by a huge wave or as embarrassing as sitting next to the wrong person in a movie, but I think just as disorienting. You see, the episodes we encounter together this morning are going to challenge how we think and act. Many of us, we're going to feel like we've been swimming towards the surface when actually we're about to hit the sand below us. Now, as Rob said before, we've just begun a new series last week called Journey with Jesus. We are walking with Jesus as he resolutely sets his face to the cross. We're looking at Mark, uh, end of chapter 8, but mainly chapters 9 through 16. And the biggest question of this passage of Scripture is, what does it mean to follow him? The first half of Mark's all concerned with, who is this man that does all these amazing things? The second half is, well, what does it mean to follow him? And as he journeys to Jerusalem, to the cross, we choose to journey with him. And what are we going to learn? What does it mean to follow him? It means often some pretty confronting things. And today, it kind of means that up is down. So I've titled this message, The Great Reversal. And we're going to see that in these three episodes that we're going to focus on today, Jesus reorients our thinking in the first two episodes of what I reckon we would think is a blessing, he can say is a hindrance. What we think might be a blessing, he thinks is a hurdle. The last episode is going to totally reorient our thinking around what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. Okay, so first two episodes, we might think are blessings, could be hurdles. The last one, we're going to look at what leadership looks like in the kingdom. Let's get cracking with our first episode with the little children and Jesus. It's a famous, famous story, famous narrative in Mark's gospel. Now, as is often the case in the gospel accounts, people are wanting to get to some time with Jesus. They're crowding in on him. And these people are trying to get their kids to Jesus for him to bless them. But the disciples think that's a bad idea. And they just clearly tell them to go away. Don't worry the great teacher. He has more important things to do. Don't waste his time with noisy little kids. You can imagine it, right? The kids can't possibly have anything to do with what Jesus is trying to do. The big people are trying to learn, get the kids away. And don't you reckon surely they think they're doing Jesus a favor, right? They're doing Jesus a favor. They're helping him concentrate on his mission. Now get ready for our first disorientation for this morning. Jesus says to the disciples, let them come to me. Don't stand in the way. Don't hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to little ones like this. Far from a distraction and annoyance, Jesus says, the kingdom I'm ushering in belongs to them. They're not excluded, so don't you dare exclude them. A couple of us were having a laugh. We were praying just in this room 20 minutes before the service started, and a couple of our kids came in. You know, and they wanted our attention, of course, and, and here I had this, okay, what do I do here? Do I tell the kids, go out, the big people are praying. You know, get, get out of here. The big people are trying to do something important. See, so much in our ministry, we are faced with this question of what is the deal with kids' church? Do they just go out there and we just kind of put something entertaining on for them so the big people can learn? And at Harborside Church, we say no. Our little people are disciples of Christ as well. And we teach them. Of course, they have their own wonderful kids' program that we want to fund, that we want to have amazing volunteers and incredible leaders back there. 
But they're not just out of the way so big people can learn. They are, as Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to such as these. Don't you dare exclude them. And then classic Jesus, he takes it up a notch. He says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You can just imagine the reaction of the adults around Jesus. You are, what? You are asking us to be like these little kids? Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, I want you to be like them? In what way? Is he talking about their tantrums? You know, I want you to be just like these two and three-year-olds. When they throw a tantrum, do that. Be exactly like them in that way. Is that what he means? Does he mean, you know how kids struggle to share? None of my kids struggle to share. They're perfect all the time. No fighting in our house whatsoever. But, uh, <clears throat> that was a joke. But in, uh, is it that? Is he saying, I want you to be selfish like them? I want you to struggle to share? Of course he's not talking about either of those things. He's saying, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you can't enter it. He's highlighting the children's utter dependence on their parents. And it's what we often call childlike faith. And my uh, four-year-old son, Micah, when we're trying to brush his teeth or, or get him dressed or, or trying to do just one of those things, he often says, no, I can do it. I'm a big boy. He wants to be like his big brother and sister. And it's normal, right? As they grow up, they want to become more independent. I can do it. I'm a big boy. But I tell you what, sometimes we have to kind of suppress a laugh because it's 10, 15 seconds later, he's just asking us to do something for him. He comes back struggling with sort of one arm through the T-shirt and just struggling. You know, he can't. He's put the head through the arm. You know, I can do it. I'm a big boy. Obviously, he can't. And we suppress a, a little laugh and a smile because that's kids. So many times throughout the day, he looks to us for provision, for guidance, for help because children are dependent on us parents, aren't they? And they mostly don't pretend not to need it or at least for long. See, when children receive something from us as parents or carers, they don't complicate things like you and I have the tendency to, right? They don't think about, like, you know, here you go, son, here's your cup of milk. They don't think, did I do enough to earn this? You know, do, do I really deserve this? Have I sought your approval enough to receive this? Of course, they never think about it like that. They don't because their trust is in us for their provision, it's in their very nature to be trusting. That's why we must be very careful to create safe spaces for our little ones because they are vulnerable in their trusting natures. But this is what Jesus is getting at. We must receive the kingdom of God with childlike faith and dependence. But here's the problem with that. We rarely do it. We rarely commend behavior like that. In the church and outside, certainly outside the church, people would just to see that as blind naivety. But even in the church, what do we give attention to? What do we commend? Childlike faith? I think we often talk a lot about the exact opposite. We give far, often can give far too much attention to things that build our independence. Not our dependency on God, but our independence apart from him which can then lead to pride, which is the greatest barrier between God and humanity. Pip and I met a Bible college principal, really great guy in his 80s now, and he was a Bible college principal at a fantastic Bible college for over 20 years. I think it was 26 years. Great man. And halfway through his tenure there, he had this kind of crisis moment 
He really, he, he felt himself to ask his staff and ask himself, are we really preparing people for ministry in what we do here? Are we really preparing men and women for the life that is going to meet them outside college to love and grow and flourish in church ministry and mission around the world? Is what we're doing helping with that? Or are we just putting people through subjects, just churning them through degrees? And he was very convicted about this. And so they began at least a three-year time of research, looking into what they are doing. Is it really making a difference for the glory of God and the benefit of his church? And what they found was pretty confronting. By and large, what they found was students who did better at college did worse after college. Students who got better academic results at college generally did worse on the other side of college in ministry. Now, I know it's difficult. What is success? What does success look like in ministry? All that kind of stuff. I know that's hard. But they had lots of metrics. But isn't that a confronting statistic? And they spent the next 10 years at the Bible College totally changing the way they did ministry. Instead of coming to one central place and being there for a number of years, they pioneered part-time study and involved in local churches. Now, I'm just pointing that out for one reason, and it's this. Accumulation of knowledge, which Bible colleges can be famous places for fostering, can, be, can become an idol and therefore a hurdle to receiving Jesus. Now, what am I getting at here? It matters far more who you are than what we know. We grow our character and build our faith by developing dependence on the one who can transform our character. If academic brilliance doesn't lead us more to a love and a worship and a dependence on Jesus Christ, then what are we doing it for? It's not that those pursuits aren't good. They're wonderful and great and true. But if they lead us into thinking, this is what we put our hope and our trust in, then what are they really for? Knowledge is not the enemy, but how quickly, quickly, and particularly in a place like this, can we depend on it in place of faith and transfer our, our trust away from Christ? There's a difference between using God-given talents, marvelous intellect, great planning skills, and trusting in them. There's a difference, isn't there? On this journey with Jesus, we lay aside anything that can lead us away from trusting in Christ. Up is down. Okay, let's keep moving. Our next episode picks up a similar theme. We've seen how the accumulation of knowledge can be a hurdle to Jesus. Now let's look at another. As Jesus is getting on his way, a man approaches Jesus. He actually runs up to him, falls on his knees in his presence in an incredible act of humility and submission. I mean, dirtying his robes. This is a man, as we're going to see, is of some sort of wealth and stature, utterly humbles himself in front of Jesus. Now, who is this guy? But well, we can kind of piece together from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he's young, that he's got money, he's wealthy, he's, he's of some sort of stature, so he's got some status, and he's a ruler of some sort. So that's why we often call him the rich young ruler. Now, he approaches Jesus because he's got some questions, but unfortunately, I don't think he's going to love the answers. He says, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. What have I got to do? Jesus, you seem to be very close to God. Your teaching seems good and true. Put me on the right track. Give me the heads up. Show me what I've got to do to inherit eternal life, to receive the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting. He says, what do I have to do to get? 
Now, we're just so familiar with that equation, aren't we? He's a man of wealth, a man of status. He's used to this. What have I got to do to get? It's how the world works, isn't it? We're so used to it. You want to get something, you've got to do something. What do I have to do to get? And then Jesus is kind of surprising. He reels off these six commandments. Have you done this? Have you done this? Do you do this? Have you done this? The young ruler wants to get something. He's looking for a do answer, and Jesus gives it to him in order to get to the heart of the matter. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, we'll have a look in a second. The young man replies, Jesus says, well, here are these six commandments. Have you done them? The young, rich young ruler replies, yes, I have. And Jesus doesn't say, you're a liar. I know your heart. No, he says, he looks at him. The text says, and he loved him. Jesus looks at him and loves him. He sees him searching for an answer. It's a very good question. What is the path to eternal life? But knowing what's in his heart, he knows how hard the next statement's going to be for him to hear. You want eternal life? You want to follow me? Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What a command. Why does Jesus tell him to do this? It seems like such a high price. Now, people in this area, in this city, talking about this, we are immediately are very nervous. Go, sell everything you have, give to the poor. Well, that's what we're going to do now. Can we have the offertory bags passed around, please? <laughs> I'm just going to... I tell you what, it's confronting. If you're not confronted by this, you might be half asleep. I'm confronted by this. What a request. Has such a high price. Why does he ask this man to do it? Because this man may have kept those other six commandments Jesus mentioned, but he's absolutely broken the first. You shall have no other gods but me. His wealth, his status, it's taken the place of worship that God must take. See, this man's heart, it's been revealed. Jesus is called the great surgeon, right? Here he is unveiling this man's heart in front of everybody. It must have been so exposing for this rich young ruler because we're told this man's face fell and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He couldn't do it. The hurdle to this man receiving the kingdom, coming on this journey with Jesus, was his wealth. It was something he could just not let go of. Now, last week we heard Jesus' pretty full-on words. You want to follow me? Deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow me. And then he says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? We have just seen this man's whole world and he couldn't let it go. His soul, our souls, are of infinite value. Far more than all the wealth in the world, the world, but this man didn't think so. And he walks away sad. This was the man's whole world and he couldn't let it go. Recently, I've been reading a really fantastic, uh, fantastic autobiography by a man of the name Brother Andrew. He started an amazing ministry called Open Doors, which is actually one of our partners. And they serve the persecuted church worldwide. And they did an incredible amount of ministry. He's actually still alive. In the 50s and 60s, predominantly, serving the persecuted church, getting Bibles into, into the, cold, into the um, Iron Curtain area, or just amazing stuff. But before all that, he grew up in the Netherlands, in Holland, in a pretty strict Dutch Reformed community and family. 
And not very uncommonly, he rejected it. He couldn't handle it. As a, as a late teenager in his early 20s, and he went and joined the army, which he greatly regretted. He was taken to Indonesia to fight to protect Dutch territory. And what he experienced there was just truly the horrors of war. He was asked to do horrific things, awful things. And they haunted him. And he hated himself for what he'd done. He could not forgive himself. And as a very young man, he became angry and bitter. And he just wanted to end his life. He would go on these stupid escapades, really trying to take his own life because he hated it so much of, of what he did and who he'd become. This one particular uh, battle, he got quite badly injured and hurt his leg and was in hospital. And these beautiful nuns were taking care of him, these devout Christian nuns, trying to love this man full of hate. And it was pretty touch and go whether he was going to um, keep his leg or not. And he was just in a very, very dark place. And when the hospital got quiet at night, he'd sneak out to the local bar and just get absolutely hammered every night. He'd just get drunk so he could just forget about his life. He'd crawl back to the hospital thinking no one would see him. But of course, all the nurses could see. And they loved him and they had pity on him. And one very courageous and bold nurse one day went up to him and said, Andrew, pulled up a chair next to his bed. I'd like to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? He said, sure. The boredom of hospital got to him. Okay, fine. And he noticed he loved the monkeys that would play near the hospital. And he said, Andrew, do you know how the natives catch the monkeys out there in the wild? He says, what they do is they get a coconut and they hollow it out and they put a hole in one of the ends and they stick a little pebble in there. Now, the hole is only big enough for the monkey to, put, to just be able to slip its paw through. And then what they do, the natives, when they want to catch it, they, they leave a coconut like that on sort of like a natural pathway, and they go back in the bushes and wait with their nets. And soon enough, a curious monkey will come along and pick up the coconut and rattle it. And they'll be just enamored with what is inside. And they look, they try to see what's in there, and they put their hand in, and they grab what they think is a prize. It's just a pebble. And the problem is they can't get their hand out when their fist is clenched. So they cannot get their hand out unless they let go of what they are holding. And the problem is the monkey will never let go of what it thinks is a prize, even if it means losing his freedom. The nurse then paused and looked at Andrew and said, are you holding on to something, Andrew? Something that's keeping you from your freedom? I mean, she could see what it was, his anger, his bitterness. It was keeping him from true freedom. What a question. What a courageous woman. See, Jesus knows the rich young ruler. He knows his heart, just like he knows every single one of ours and what we are holding on to. And he knew what the rich young ruler was holding on to. All his wealth could have had the value of a pebble in a coconut if it kept him from Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't command all his followers to sell everything we have and give it to the poor. But he does command us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So, of course, it begs the question for every single one of us today, what are we holding on to that's keeping us from true freedom? Freedom in Christ. Now, of course, the obvious one is wealth. It could be our wealth. It could be status. It could be something or someone. It could be a job title. It could be a career achievement. It could be any achievement. 
Nothing is worth losing our freedom for. You see, what you and I actually need is to be filled with a vision of the beauty of Christ that would cause us to drop whatever we hold and to worship the one who brings true life and true freedom. That's what we need. Okay, let's move on to our third and final episode for this morning where Jesus again turns us upside down regarding now kingdom leadership. What does that look like? Well, we heard it read so well for us by Beck. Two of the 12 disciples, James and John, come to Jesus with a question. Well, it's really a statement. I don't know about you, but it's so rude what they, how they talk to Jesus. I've just, I find it even hard to read this. Do they know who they're speaking to? Jesus is not a genie. What do they say? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You can just feel the impertinence of it, can't you? And I think Jesus' response is almost more surprising. I reckon they deserve a clip over the ear for how they talk to him. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Again, trying to search out their motives. But the patience of this man, the forbearance, he must be the son of God. But it gets worse before it gets better. They say, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Now, what's going on here? Well, they recognize Jesus' true identity. Actually, they know that Jesus is, his future does have glory in it. He's the real deal. Somehow he's going to achieve glory. They want to be a part of it. But here's the problem. They want status and glory, and they're willing to use even the Son of God to get it. Jesus replies, you don't know what you're asking. (laughs) Do you know what it's going to take for me to achieve that glory? Suffer, suffering, rejection, death. That equals glory for me. Are you willing to do that? And naively, that yeah, we are. We can do it. Absolutely. And then Jesus says, actually, yes, you will. You will. You will experience suffering, rejection, and death. This was the life of the disciples of Jesus. As we know, almost all of them died a martyr's death. But he says, to sit on my right hand or my left, I cannot grant that. And then I just, I love this. The other disciples get a whiff of some sort of special treatment that James and John are having. Oh, they get to suffer and die instead of us. It's ridiculous, like my children, when they sense something's unfair, they just pounce on it straight away. Oh, it's not fair. They got it. They got it. Then Jesus takes the opportunity for a powerful teaching moment. He pulls the 12 aside. It feels like he's just knocking their heads together, right? It's what he should be doing anyway. He pulls them aside and he tells them, I'm training you to be leaders in my kingdom. And if you want to lead, you will be nothing like what you see out there in the world. The leaders you see out there in the world, you will be nothing like them because I am nothing like those leaders. They like to rule over people. They like the status. They like the positions of power. They like to exercise authority over others. They take pride in the places of power. Not so with you. You want to be great in my kingdom? James and John, back of the line. It's as simple as that. You want to lead in my name? Get serving. You want to become great? Be a servant. You see, leadership, greatness in Jesus' kingdom looks like service. Another up is down. 
And here's the thing. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds nice. The last should be first, the first should be last. But I tell you what, it's hard to live, isn't it? It's hard to put into practice. One of my heroes of the faith, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a great man of God, and he lived... Uh, he died in a Nazi concentration camp, and he grew up in, in Berlin as a, as a theologian, as, as a church pastor, as a writer. And before he, his life was taken, he, uh, he tried to live the life of a pastor in Nazi Germany. As, as Hitler and his cronies were persecuting the church more and more, they outlawed Bible colleges. So he started a couple of underground ones. They went outside of Berlin... And they did Life Together. And he's got a very famous book called Life Together, written out of this time. And they did Life on Life. It was small. And they did everything together. Lessons, teaching, play, meals. They did it all very close proximity. And one night after a good meal, everyone lingered at the table. Right? We know what that's like. Good conversation, good wine. It's a great, great time of the night. It's one of my favorite things to do. Sit around and chat and enjoy each other's company at a dinner party. Well, then Bonhoeffer gets up and starts clearing the plates. And he invites anybody, hey, we're going to the kitchen and clean up. Anyone want to help me? Silence. We all know what that's like, don't we? I mean, when there's good conversation to be had, good glass of wine to be finished, who wants to clean up? Every day, we have the opportunity to serve or be served. And everyone around that table at that moment, except for Bonhoeffer, was saying, Someone else, can have a turn, me, someone else can have a turn serving today. So Bonhoeffer got all the dishes and went into the kitchen and quietly shut the door and locked it. About 20 of them began the long process of cleaning up after everybody. And then everyone, all the students just started to feel guilty, that collective guilt, right? So they go to the kitchen, try and open the door, it's locked. And they beat on the door. Help, help, sorry, let us help. He ignored them. They beat on the door for ages, was begging them, begging him to let them help. I mean, they're great pastor, professor, wise, learned teacher, was doing all the cleaning. They should be helping. But he, he just ignored them. And then eventually they went away. No one mentioned it again. But the lesson was crystal clear. You want to come here? You want to learn about the ways of Jesus? Then let me show you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. This is leadership in the kingdom. It's upside down, isn't it? Power now means lowliness. Greatness means service. Influence means selflessness. Now, I don't know about you. I reckon, I reckon some of us are feeling a bit of a burden right now a growing burden, because what Jesus calls us to here is hard. Can we just be real? This is hard. It's so countercultural to deny ourselves in this way is difficult and painful. And I could just stop the sermon here and work on our wills and say, come on, we can do better. Let's try harder in serving each other. Try harder, go home and love your wife, love your husband, serve them, serve your kids. Let go of anything that would distract you from the glory of God. Work hard at that. I could do that and I could leave us with that burden. But I don't want to do that because we are leaving the power of the gospel out of the story. Because, my friends, the problem is we cannot do it. Jesus is not just our great example. 
He is our Savior. And we cannot do these things. We need someone to do it for us. What we must do is let verse 45 of our passage today transform our hearts first and foremost. What does Jesus say? After teaching the disciples, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, earlier in our passage, when the disciples see the rich young ruler walking away, they think if he can't be saved, there's no help for anybody. If an upstanding citizen like him is walking away, there's no hope for us. So they say to Jesus, who then can be saved? He says, with man, this is impossible. With people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But how? The Son of Man, Jesus, will give his life as a ransom for many. And until this transforms our hearts, we will not be able to follow him in this way. Let me try and illustrate this. Um, That movie I spoke about at the beginning uh, was a great movie. It's called 1917. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's a great epic war movie. And I just, I loved it. It is, it's moving and epic. The cinematography is beautiful. And if you don't know it, it obviously takes place in World War I in the second last year of the war. And it follows the story of two British young men who were given the very special mission of informing two battalions, that's 1,600 men, to stop a planned attack on the German front line. So the Germans have tricked the Allied troops and they've feigned a retreat. And the British think, we've got them on the run, let's get them. But the Germans have just dropped back to another incredibly heavy fortified line. And if the British troops advance, they'll be absolutely slaughtered. It'll be a bloodbath like none they've seen in the war. And the rest of the movie, I don't want to give anything away, but the rest of the movie follows these two men in their harrowing journey to reach the fellow soldiers with these very important new orders. And towards the end of the film, one of the young men with these incredibly very important orders is stuck. He's reached the front line and he's 1,600 men. It's about to go over the top. And he's tried to speak to all these men who are commanding these soldiers, but they just keep telling him to go down the line. Where's the commanding officer? I've got these orders. He's over there. He's down there. He's in this hut. He's in this hut. And he keeps going, but he's, just, he's hit this place when he can go no further. The trenches are so narrow. He cannot get through. He's screaming at the men to get out of the way. He is trying to save their very lives, but they're distracted. They're about to go over the top. There's no way through. And then he spots the ladder leading up to no man's land. And he, he, he sort of goes toward it and lays a hand on the ladder. And one of the, the, one of the commanding officers, not the commanding officer that he cannot get to, says to him, what the bloody hell are you doing? Don't be a fool, man. You go up that ladder to your certain death. But he knows how important his orders are. And this man of absolute courage climbs and climbs up the ladder and then just into no man's land and then begins really one of the greatest scenes I have seen in a movie for a long time. He is determined to save these men. It's just one of the most powerful scenes I've seen in a while. It's just lovely. If you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's this young man in slow motion sprints down his trench line, just 
trying to avoid bullet fire and mortar fire from the enemy. And then the order to go over the top is given. And he's crashing into these men as he's trying to get to the commanding officer to save these men's lives. And as I'm sitting there, tears are just streaming down my face because I see the beauty of the gospel in this moment. See, Jesus Christ did that for you and I. This young man courageously risked his life to save these people. Jesus Christ didn't risk it. He knew what he was going to, certain death to the cross. Those soldiers were facing certain death if they weren't stopped. You and I face certain death if it is not for the God-man Jesus Christ and what he does. And I'm just moved to tears as I see the gospel come alive for me. This is Christ as a ransom for many. Unable, you and I, unable to save ourselves. But Jesus willingly does it for you and I. Goes into the firing line instead of us. He gets death, we get freedom. See, when this transforms our hearts, when the Holy Spirit applies the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of this truth to our souls, we can then receive the kingdom with childlike faith. We can then let go of anything that would take the place of Christ. What could ever be of greater worth than Christ and what he's done for us? This is the vision of the beauty of Christ that you and I so desperately need. And then when we see this, when we are enamored with it, we can embrace the servant-hearted leadership Christ demands of us.